Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome back to the House of Pod. I'm Kavi. I'm Lizzie. How are you, my friend? I'm good. We're a medical sort of podcast talking about medical sort of stuff. I'm good. Yeah. How are you? Yeah, that's what that's how I feel too. <laughs> um, so you know what we should do uh, today? We're we're gonna do Throw a little, back. Uh, do a little listener mailbag. Let's go through some of the mail we've got recently and and read some listener mail. Do you get stuff in the mail? Well, not the real mail, the email. Okay. The electronic mail. Got it. Um, all right. Here's the first one from Ishan Panchal. Hello, HOP gang. Question for you all. And maybe you all discussed this on one of the more recent episodes, but I'm still playing catch up. Come on, buddy, catch up. What are your thoughts on med students taking up to social media to educate the public? I know of people that have been holding live Q&A sessions to talk about vaccines, COVID, HPV, etc. On one hand, I appreciate their effort, but I guess it still puts into question the validity of what they're saying as a current student versus being a certified physician. Love the show, and needless to say, but I'm learning quite a bit from the podcast, and it's helping ease some of my concerns regarding holding up this ideal image of a doctor as well. That clearly i mean if if you see us and you're like those guys are doctors then you're like we can be doctors too is that a real compliment or a backhanded compliment he's like you guys are really helping me know what a doctor who's slumming it right is like right. you guys make me feel a lot better about being me um, <laughs> right but I don't, why do people respect doctors so much it doesn't seem that noble <laughs> sincerely a loyal hopper ishan panchal okay um i like so, the question. question yeah and yet you know, all I care about is misinformation. I think any person in the whole world 
can do good research and read valid articles and data and listen to the CD, you know, Dr. Fauci and people who are the experts and can spout back data in a reliable, accurate way. And if that happens to be a med student, all for I'm all for it. They might know more than me. You know, you and I are GI docs. I don't spend all my time researching the latest data in COVID because it's so ever-changing. And honestly, maybe a med student, especially in their fourth year, who has very little to do, to be honest, half the year, they probably know more than I. And I would just um, listen to them. And if they sound like they're legitimate and they're using valid resources, I would, I would listen to what they have to say. I agree if they're upfront about being a medical student, because there is something to be said for the residency process that you go through, because you do learn how to translate book science, book medicine into real world care through that. So I think that's important, but I agree with you. Your point is you can be a great medical educator and you can be a science communicator even without being a doctor of 20 years. Exactly. I just, right. I just think it is important for them to be frank about where they're coming from in their process. A hundred percent, because I think if they're not frank about where they're coming from or who they are, then you shouldn't listen to anything else they have to say right. after that. Like right. that's just life, right? And right, I, do, right. I agree with you that you don't need to be an MD to be educated on the topic of, you know, it's, it's a lot of news and you, I yeah. think people can educate themselves really well. Right. Right. All right. I hope that answers that question. Thank you for listening, buddy. All right. This next email comes from Jonathan Wood. Dear HOP, I'm a 34 year old non-traditional medical student at the university of Nebraska, currently listening to HOP at three times speed. Wow. Which by the way, we talk fast to begin with, particularly you. So like three times speed is crazy. Yeah, that's um, unlistenable. That's misogynistic. He doesn't want to hear what I have to say. <laughs> You're doing three times the speed. I don't think it's just you, though. I think he's going through me. Um, so like, like your guest, Trisha, he's talking about uh, Trisha Pendergrast, a medical student. I started studying during my last phase one curricular block on December 6th. Since then, I have put in at least eight hours of studying every day. Wow. Most days, well over 10 hours, including weekends, Christmas, New Year's Eve, and New Year's Day. It isn't an exaggeration to say that this test is extremely detrimental to every student's mental health. We're talking about the, the step one, USMLE step one part of the medical student test taking. We did an episode with a medical student. We talked about how detrimental that is to medical students, particularly now. Always has been, I guess, but particularly now, it seems to be getting worse. I believe that Trisha said that the test was being weaponized to determine the fates of these young people. Yeah. I cannot express how negatively I feel about the NBME. That's the, I guess, the, the organization that does it. Present prioritizing residency director's wishes over student well-being for the past decade. I know that I'm screaming into the wind right now. Um, Thank you for all that you do, and please keep up the amazing podcast. All right. Well, it was tough, I think, for some of us, but it definitely seems to have gotten much, much worse, and we're very glad that that test went pass, not pass, although mm -hmm. I think it probably is too late for your particular case. I think you're probably still dealing with the, the grades so, um, or the, the number score. So I'm, yeah. I'm sorry to hear that, man. I hope you did great on it. I'm sure you did. Uh, let us know how things went and stay strong. If anyone wants to listen, episode 107, uh, January 18th is when it was published with Trisha Pendergrast. Uh, and we just talked a lot about her frustration with the test. So if anyone's a med student out there and wants to have a vent session, please listen to that episode and uh, find Jonathan Wood online. 
Okay. So if you guys have any questions that you want us to address on the show, if you have anything you want to get off your chest and share, um, if you have a poem that you've written and you'd like for us to read it or you want to read it yourself and it's medically related, I'm open to that. What I'm saying is we have an email, use it. HOPquestions at gmail.com. Um, before we go to our next guest, I'm really excited to, to have her on. She is a world-class expert in inflammatory bowel disease and in gastroenterology. So it's kind of a big deal to get someone this smart on the show. Uh, her name is Dr. Uma Mahadevan, and she is a professor of medicine at UCSF. Before we get to that, as always, I want to thank Nadim for helping us with production. I want to thank our listeners. If you haven't already, make sure you're following us at Twitter, at the House of Pod. Subscribe to our show on iTunes or wherever you listen to your pods. Rate, review, do that. And anyone else you want to thank, Lizzie? Never. All right. Stay tuned and listen to some delightful music from my band, The Resurrection Men, while you wait for our guest. And welcome back. Today we have a very special guest. We're very excited to have her, Dr. Uma Mahadevan. She is a professor of medicine at UCSF. She is a gastroenterologist, kind of like Lizzie and I, but much smarter. And she is probably one of the world's top leading experts, not probably, definitely one of the world's leading experts in the field of inflammatory bowel disease. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for the nice introduction. Thank you. Um, just for those of our listeners who have never heard of inflammatory bowel disease, um, a lot of people call it IBD. A lot of people call it inappropriately IBS. I have a lot of patients and colleagues who just like sort of slip up all the time. IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, IBD, inflammatory bowel disease. Can you tell us maybe kind of your simple explanation to your patients or your friends or family what IBD is? Sure, I, I think uh, we can start by differentiating between IBD and IBS. And so IBD is when you have visible lesions or ulcers in the colon. IBS, you have a lot of symptoms, but generally when you scope people, it looks normal. With um, inflammatory bowel disease or IBD, there are two types, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And Crohn's disease can be ulceration anywhere from the mouth to the anus and can also include fistulas, which is when the disease burrows through the bowel into the skin, usually around the anus. Uh, ulcerative colitis is limited to the colon and you have ulceration in the colon. And it can affect people of all ages. Uh, we're seeing more and more in older patients as well as very young people. So we're gonna get asked this a lot you know, being GI doctors. And I'm curious to know what your answer is when people say, why did I get this? So that, that is a great question. And for every person, it's slightly different. One of the things I do want to really emphasize is it's not something they did. It's not their fault. And this is particularly when it comes to parents, when their child gets it, there's a lot of guilt. Uh, it's not something you did. And a very simple explanation of why people get inflammatory bowel disease, we usually say there are four things. 
One, you have to have the right genes. So having a family member with IBD is one of the biggest risk factors, but most people with IBD do not have a family member that's affected. Um, so genetics. The second thing is the environment. Something in the environment triggered this inflammation because we all eat. When we eat, we put foreign material into our body and our body re reacts, but just a little bit. In patients with inflammatory bowel disease, their genetics and their immune system keep them from turning that off. And so they have an excessive reaction and that's what causes the ulceration. So your genetics, your immune system, something in the environment that triggered, which could be an infection, it could be um, food, it could be uh, toxins. And then finally, something that everybody talks about is the microbiome. But the microbiome are the bacteria, virus, and fungi that live in your GI tract. And when they are out of balance, or you have what's called dysbiosis, that um, can trigger some of these reactions. That's a, a great explanation. Thank you. I, I find in my practice, and maybe you could speak to this, is that it's, it's just so hard when a patient is so young, right? Because it's sort of a life-defining illness, you know, and, and I understand it's also hard to tell a 50-year-old or a, an 80-year-old that they have a chronic disease. Um, but I find that my patients who are 18, 19, 20, it's just... Um, such a huge kind of rift and a crossroads for them. What's your approach to that? Um, sometimes parents are in involved, sometimes not, but what's your approach to ease them into a lifetime maybe of, of chronic disease? Yeah, it, it's really challenging. And uh, part of it is explaining to them, you know, how this happened, what happened and what to expect. And the key thing, particularly with younger patients, is I tell them that in no way should this limit what you want to do with your life. So if you um, are able to control this, which for almost every patient you are, then you can have a family, you can you know, find a partner, have a family, have the job that you want, travel. Um, the one thing I would say that you need is to have insurance. You need to have a job that has insurance. And aside from that, there are no limitations. Um, and we have patients with inflammatory bowel disease who become prime minister of Japan, like Prime Minister Abe, or who are quarterbacks in the National Football League, like from the Jacksonville Jaguars, or who are World Series winning pitchers, like Hunter Strickland. You know, there are a lot of people out there who uh, have inflammatory bowel disease and do great things. So that's the key. There's no limitations. Yeah. You know, we... Um sometimes get asked and actually one of the listener questions uh was about this i was going to save it for later but i'll just bring it up now why can't we cure it one and two because we can control it pretty well but we can't really say we cure patients at least most times and when do you think that will happen if ever so in technically you can cure ulcerative colitis by removing the colon Right. That's not a solution that people particularly. The nuclear like. option. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it works. It works. It's a cure. Once you take out the colon with ulcerative colitis, you are cured. There are 10% of people where, you know, we think of ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, it's really a spectrum. And 10% of people in the middle have what we call IBD undetermined, where, um, they have features of both Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. So sometimes we say you're cured, we took out your colon, but 
they get Crohn's disease. That's very rare, but it can happen. For Crohn's disease, there, there's been actually a lot of talk about changing how we speak about Crohn's disease because Crohn's is probably not one disease. It's very heterogeneous. There's very, a lot of difference in Crohn's disease. There are people who have purely ileal disease. There are people who have purely colonic disease. 5% um, of people may have disease just in the perineum. 5% of people may have disease just in the upper GI tract. And so Crohn's, Crohn's is, it's hard to cure something that it's not one thing. Uh, it's many right. things, and that's part of it. And there are many factors involved. It's it's not like there's one thing you can fix, and then everything gets better. Along along treatment and cure. I mean, you've been a doctor for over ten years, right? Yeah, a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you're not you're not that um, much more advanced than Kave and I. I think I'm sure. No, she's way more advanced. She's advanced intellectually. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But um. But hasn't it been, would, would you tell our listeners, hasn't it been incredible kind of the changes and advances that we do have in, in my career, which, yeah. you know, I just, it's, it's mind blowing that we do have these treatment options. Um, so I'd like to hear your perspective on that. And then also maybe how you coach patients, because I have a lot of patients who are like, well, that's chemotherapy. That's too strong for me. I don't want that medicine. You know, how, how you talk to patients to encourage them to do this thing that is sort of miraculous. Yeah, you know, when when you speak to a doctor who took care of Crohn's disease before the first biologic, it was a completely different ball game. There it's was like, a lot It's like AIDS, right? Like yeah, it's like I mean, it's revolutionary. It is absolutely. Like there was a lot more steroid use, there was a lot more well, a lot more surgery, a lot more hospitalization, a lot more yeah. ostomies for Crohn's disease. And you had people like when, when I was a trainee, I would see some of those patients come in. They were wheelchair bound because they had had so many, so much steroids in their life. They, they had short bowel syndrome that we, we don't see that very often anymore. Yeah. Uh, and it really did revolutionize. So 1998 was when infliximab came out for Crohn's disease and we didn't even really use it properly because we were using it episodically we we're still figuring it out and um you know since then i think we have now 10 plus um medications with more along the way and we're still trying to figure it out i think the next frontier you were talking about cure the next frontier is precision medicine taking like no, no five people with crohn's disease are the same so you take these five people you figure out exactly what it is about that they have and then you give them the right treatment for some of them it would be an anti-tnf versus an anti-integrin for another person it may be microbiome based therapies you know so i think that is the future and since we've come so far in 20 plus years i think in the next 20 years you're going to really see much more personalized approach to the management of these patients when you talk about a cure for ulcerative colitis, um, you mentioned removing the colon. And yeah. sometimes for people who don't know, sometimes it involves like some healing process and sometimes it's um, an irreversible part of the surgery that requires the colostomy bag. Again, in my practice, in my experience, um, having a bag is, is one of the most terrifying things I think patients conceive of when they think of colon issues or bowel issues in surgery. Um, and again, how do you how do you coach or talk to your patients who are younger and talking about 
having a family or a partner and their sex life when they might have a bag, whether it's temporarily or some of our patients permanently? So um, the, I can tell them all kinds of things and I do like, you know, we can place your bag really low so you can still wear a two piece bathing suit. You can, you know, change your bags depending on what you're doing, et cetera. But the most powerful thing is I have a, um, I have several patients who've gone through this in a very, at a very young age and they will reach out and speak to the patient thinking about surgery and mm-hmm. they form their own, own like informal support group. And that really is the most powerful because what they will say, because the only time we really will take out a colon in Crohn's disease is where, where you get an ostomy is when you've exhausted all therapeutic options. There's nothing else we can really offer or there's a cancer. And those are the two reasons why we would give somebody an ostomy. And so it's not that, you know, we didn't try everything else. And usually those patients are suffering. They don't have a social life. They don't go out. They don't, they're chained to a bathroom. They are in considerable pain. And one thing we tell them is when you are, when you wake up from this, you may have an ostomy, but you will have your life back. And um, I can say that, but when somebody who went through it tells them the same thing and says, and I went to, I have a patient who's lovely, who went to NP school, who met her husband, who had two children after getting an ostomy. And she's one of the most powerful advocates in my practice and support for some of these patients showing, look, I did all of this. This isn't going to hold you back. Yeah, that's yeah. great. I mean, nothing's more powerful than, than that firsthand account. That's, it's wonderful that you're able to connect people like that. You know, I, I like to think that one of the benefits of the internet now is that many people can connect like that if they weren't lucky enough to have an experienced doctor like yourself, yeah. you know, introducing them to patients. But then again, the internet's also a, a double-edged sword and you have to deal <laughs> with a lot of misinformation now. That's a, a relatively new thing. In terms of the misinformation that you battle regarding IBD, like for example, today I just heard a talk about some guy who feels like he cured his IBD with cold weather. What have you heard? What do you what do you find yourself battling the most? What misconceptions are out there that you either regards to treatment or or anything else regarding IBD? So I think um, misinformation is huge. I think one of your listeners texted, you know, what are three things that you would fix that would help patients the most? And I think number one is misinformation. The amount of misinformation that's out there that's holding people back from getting better is, is stunning. And so, um, you know, I think that some of the key misinformation is that the medicine should only be used as a last resort and that they can cure themselves with various things, particularly diet comes up a lot, right. um, a or, lot. <laughs> or herbal medicines or you know, Ayurvedic medicines. And everybody always has a story of that one person who cured themselves doing this. Right. And um, you know, I think that there is, I, I, I am a huge proponent of diet as a treatment for inflammatory bowel disease. I think it's very important. I think we're learning a lot more about it. I think a lot of what we eat um, does drive inflammation. But once you, and what I tell my patients is maybe diet can prevent this happening perhaps, Um, but once you have it, for people with moderate to severe disease, 
diet alone is not going to turn it around. And, um, and what happens is patients become very malnourished. They have a very limited um, amount of food they're able to eat. And it also limits their socialization because, you know, they're the person who can't go to a restaurant because they can't eat anything there. You know, so there, there's a lot of harm that goes along with some of these really restrictive diets and it doesn't help in the long run. And so I think that, um, you know, understanding the role of medicine and then as an adjunct having diet uh, is, is important. And I think it's, it's all tied in with the microbiome and how we want to treat disease in the future. That's, that's well put. So let's actually take a step back and talk about going into GI in mm-hmm. general before you specialize in IBD. Um, because this is a question that Lizzie and I get all the time from patients. You know, it's usually like that patient that's being, you know, wheeled in for a colonoscopy and they just look at us and they have the, this perplexed look on their face and they just <laughs> say, why did you choose this field? Why would you go into this field? What, what is it about GI? When, when patients ask you that, what, what's the reason you went into GI? So, um, you know, because it's fun. Yeah, I think so much of what you do depends on who you saw in medical school doing it. And um, most people who go into GI, I would say, thought about GI and cardiology. So we are proceduralists. We like to use our hands as well as think, but we don't want to think so much and become nephrologists. And we don't want to (laughs) not think at all and become, you know, orthopods. Orthopedic yeah. surgeons, we all know. <laughs> so so we, we like to think and we like to use our hands. And so then in medicine, that really is GI and cardiology, right? So I think for most of us, if you were fun, you went into GI. And if you were a gunner, you went into cardiology. <laughs> That's kind of how it worked out. A gunner for our listeners who didn't go to medical school is that one person who is really hardcore, uh, a little backstabby and questionable but you know, does really well in the. I would put it nicer. I would say they're just intense. I, you know, they're actually, intense. It, it has a negative connotation. Those are the people is, who said they haven't studied at all, but have closet, studied all night. They're gunners. gunners. Those yeah. are closet yeah. gunners, which are yeah. the worst. No one's yeah. worse than a closet gunner. At yeah. least a gunner who comes out and tells you, oh, "I'm yeah. gunning for you. I'm going to, yeah. you know, ace this test." Yeah. You respect that. A closet gunner is like, "Oh no, I didn't study at all. I was out drinking all last yeah. night." But secretly, they've been like up yes. for. 42 hours just studying for this. You're you're right. The term gunning for you sounds terrible, but you're right. There are some gunners who are just like, this is who I am. I can't change who I am. And those are the best kind of, those are the gunners we love. And that's cool. And they went into cardiology. So, so I I totally agree. That was like my thought too. I need something that had a cerebral component, but a procedural component. I feel like I get a little bit of everything. You could have a little liver, you could have a specialty and luminal stuff like you do. um, And you get to do procedures. It's fun. But, but what happened? What point did you focus on IBD? So I uh, did med- medical school in New York. And when I interviewed for residency, I interviewed at Mount Sinai in New York, which is where Burl Crone is from. And Burl Crone trained um, Henry Janowitz, who's the division is named after. And Henry Janowitz trained Dan Present, who's one of the fathers of GI, of IBD. And I did not know who he was, but I put my interest as GI when I applied for uh, residency and he interviewed me mm-hmm. and uh, as, as for, a med- for a residency. And he said, oh, you know, you're great when you come, if you come here, call me and we'll do research. And so I 
matched at Mount Sinai and I was very excited about that. And then on my first day, I called him wow. as an intern and, uh, and I did a project with him, which was on, um, Actually, my first project was with Asha Kornbluth and him. Nothing to do with IBD. It was like mm -hmm. gastroparesis after cardiac transplant or something. But yeah, I started doing projects with that S group. Simple stuff. Simple <laughs> kid stuff. And then you moved on to yeah. the real stuff. Because, and so, and I um, went to Digestive Diseases Week, which is our national conference. And it was so much fun. And I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to be with these people. I want to do research. It's, it's like so stimulating. They're such fun people. You're also deeply into academia. I mean, <laughs> you, are, you are in it. and You have been in it, I think, pretty much your whole career, right? Yeah. I mean, sounds like it. How, what advice do you have for people who are considering a life in medical academia? So I think that what's different now than when I started is there are many different paths to be in academic medicine. Um, before it was either you were a basic scientist and you were respected clinical researchers, kind of like me, people still look down their noses at you a little bit if you're just a clinical researcher. Um, but now there's like, there's clinical educator paths, there's narrative medicine, there, you know, there's a lot of really creative things that people do and, and, and are in academic medicine. Um, I think that we talk so much about physician burnout and a lot of it has to do with having no joy in what you do. It's right. just a grind. And so what I always tell our trainees or anyone who asks, you have to do something that gives you joy. And for me, the academic aspect is what brings me a lot of joy um, mm -hmm. because it's, I have curiosity, I have things I want to answer. And I realize that I'm very fortunate now. I, I'm like one of the old people or the senior people. And so you have built up resources and networks and how you do things and to support being able to do that. For a young person going into it, it it's much more challenging now. It, it's, um, I think, because you're either coming in as a clinician to a university or you're coming in as a researcher. It's hard to be in that middle path, like a 50-50 path like I did. Right, right. Yeah, they do want you to sort of declare, I guess, a little bit earlier. You know, we're all in medicine becoming more niche, you know, as, yeah. as time goes on. Um, and it's interesting because all these TV shows are like dramatic about the hospital and surgeries and like academia is actually, there's a lot of closet gunner, backstabbing, competitive, like there's some drama there and you can't like write a great script about like doing research, <laughs> you know, but like there <laughs> wow. is a lot of, there's a lot of backstabbing in the culture. So yeah. No, it's funny because basic scientists, like I, as part of AGA, I was on DD, DDW Council kind of putting the meetings together. And the clinical researchers, if we have a project where you do a big trial and you present it and someone snaps a picture while you're talking, nobody cares. If you're in a basic science room and you take a picture of their slide, oh, they, no. they have security come and <laughs> wipe it off your camera. I'm Give me the film. Give me the film. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like so like, there, there's like you're right. There's a lot of um, a lot of anxiety about being spooked and getting your next grant and all yeah. of those things. Well, maybe people can understand it with all this like drama with the vaccine, with the COVID vaccine. You're like, who was first to come out with it? Was it Pfizer? Was it Johnson & Johnson? Was it Moderna? You know, like we all knew that like whoever was first would have 
kind of the bravado. And that's what research is about. It is about being the first. It is about getting your name out there and getting Mm -hmm. it to patients, which then becomes clinical. Um, So along that line, I think we have a, we have a listener question about vaccines. So we'll transition to COVID as everyone's doing these days. We have to keep it real. Sure. Okay, this question is from Anna Fuentes at Anna Demi, A-N-A-Y-D-M-I, Anna Demi, sorry. Guidelines on vaccine approval for pre-existing conditions. Where does IBD fit in? Not listed on short order descriptions, most of which are lung related. And how will pre-existing conditions be confirmed if vaccines are delivered outside the doctor's office? That might be a little more difficult for you to answer, but for the first part, Guidelines on vaccine approval for pre-existing conditions. Where does IBD fit in? Uh, so the problem is people keep changing, shifting the goalposts. Mm-hmm. And so I, I so uh, so the phase one was healthcare workers, long-term care residents, and then phase one B, which is what we are now, are like over sixty-five, agriculture, education, emergency services. But then starting March 15th in California, they're going to have cancer, kidney disease, pulmonary disease, organ transplant, pregnancy, very important uh, for me, um, obesity, diabetes. But they have a caveat that says, or if as a result of developmental or other severe high-risk disability, one or more of the following applies, where they are likely to develop severe life-threatening illness or death from COVID or um, getting COVID limits their ability to receive ongoing care. That's starting March 15th. That is where our immune suppressed patients would be able to hit that or button and potentially get that. Now, how it's going to work is not clear because, for example, at UCSF, um, they had planned on just having self attestation like you say you're a UCSF patient you say this we believe you Um, but the state is sort of as you probably know is starting to take over and so individual institutions will not really control who they vaccinate everything is going to go through the my turn website Um, and so then how the state is going to say whether you meet that or category starting March 15th, I, they have not made that clear. Got it. So it's a bit in flux. Um, we'll, we'll try and keep updating people along the way because that's a question we get a lot. And, yeah. I, feel and like- I would say that everyone should go to my turn, um, the website and uh, the my turn California and register yourself. And then in theory, they're supposed to email you when your category comes up, but you could also use that to check up weekly to see if you do come up and, and then by county, you can schedule yourself for vaccination. Okay. This question is from a listener who didn't want me to use their name. The side effects of these medications for treating IBD seem really scary to me. How do you talk to your patients about that? So that of, is, we, we do tell them a lot of the risks with the medication. Yeah. And it's almost like we're trying to get them to not take it when we tell them all these things. <laughs> so, so, you know, this is something that comes up all the time. And uh, the same thing in the pregnant patient with IBD and the, this whole conversation about what meds you can be on. The most important thing to remember is the risk of the disease. 
And so it's a risk to benefit ratio. So if you have moderate to severe inflammatory bowel disease, you are at increased risk of needing surgery, of needing steroids, of getting cancer of the bowel, of having fistulas, of having disability, not being able to go to work. Um, if you don't treat this, it sometimes gets to the point where there is no longer a, treat, a medical treatment that will be effective. And so that's how you have to put it into context. So if somebody has mild disease and they go on a mesalamine agent, which is very low risk, fine. That is actually the majority of patients with ulcerative colitis. But if you're hospitalized and you need intravenous steroids, your chances of leaving the hospital with your colon are only about 50%. So you have to think of the numbers and the risk of the disease. Um, one third of Crohn's patients will need a surgery in their lifetime maybe just for perianal disease, not just, but for perianal disease or something else. But we can prevent that. We can change the course of disease to the point where you don't even re remember on a day-to-day -day basis you have IBD. That is a goal. Um, and then with respect to the risks of the medications, you know, we do have medicines now that are low risk. So vetalizumab is a medicine that's used for ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. It should be first line before you try a TNF because that's when it works the best. And that has no increased risk compared to placebo. There's no black box warning, no increased risk of infection, no increased risk of cancer. That's a good choice as a first biologic. The anti-TNFs we've had 20 years of experience with and patients tolerate it really well. And the majority of patients will not get serious infections. And the risk of lymphoma is less than one in a thousand. As they say, you're more likely to be in a car accident. And so part of you know, talking about risk is putting it into perspective and remembering the risk of the disease. Gotcha, okay. So a big part of your research is pregnancy in inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, so here's a question on that uh, from Ivana Rasami. What are your thoughts on proactive TDM, which I'm assuming she means therapeutic drug monitoring, on patients who are in remission during pregnancy, specifically in the second and third trimesters when infliximab clearance decreases? So um, to, to answer it generally, women with inflammatory bowel disease, there is like a big debate um, during pregnancy about stopping their medications because the biologics, what a biologic is, is an antibody. It's a monoclonal antibody. And, the, and in pregnancy, the, the placenta develops a receptor beginning around week 14, at least that starts pulling antibody from mother to baby. And that's how all the mother's antibodies are transferred to the baby. And the baby uses those antibodies to fight infection for the first six months of life. Because these antibody, because these biologics are antibodies, they also cross the placenta. And so people weren't sure what the impact of that would be. Uh, and so people wanted to stop the biologics in pregnant women early, like around week 22, or not use it at all. And then, you know, women would have bad flares and bad pregnancy outcomes. And what we showed in the piano or pregnancy registry was that these medicines can be continued throughout pregnancy without increased harm to the infant. And so the only reason to check TDM in pregnancy is if you want to manipulate how much transfers to the baby or try to. Uh, if a mother's in remission, there's no reason to do TDM. 
to check drug levels or do TDM in pregnancy because of these normal fluctuations of drug level in pregnancy. It's a closed system between mother and baby. Those antibodies are going back and forth. What do you think about um, C-section babies and IBD? Because we've, we've definitely met some people. We did like a house of pot on the street once and there was a guy who was convinced that because he was a C-section baby, his entire gut was messed up. There is, there is data from Scandinavian population-based data that um, undergoing a cesarean section in a healthy mother, we're not talking about IBD mothers, in a healthy mother undergoing C-section, you don't go through the vagina, you don't get the microbiome, the bacteria from the mother, and that there's an increased risk of immune-mediated disease. And there was a study from Scandinavia that showed that children born of C-sections, particularly boys, did have an increased risk of IBD. Oh, there's an increased risk of IBD as well. I thought it was just, um, you know, prone to IBS, irritable bowel, and like gut microbiome, gut microbiome disturbances. I didn't actually know there was there, data there, on There IBD. was one study that showed that. Yeah. And it's not consistently reproduced, but right. there was a study to suggest that. Yeah. And this is presumed because you're like, the baby is seeing bacterial flora from the vagina that's not seeing the C-section? What's the yeah. mechanism behind this? Yeah, I, that there is, a, there, there is a benefit of going through the birth canal, that there is much more, because, you know, like when you do a C-section, you cut open the uterus, it's very sterile. You know, they're not, you know, getting that same exposure. Yeah. But you would think that then if they're breastfed, they would get that exposure. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's not really clear, but, but, and then the other thing is, what is the reason for the C-section? And is that more predictive for why they had IBD? Right. It's just that we know that gut um, microbiome, we know that bacterial diversity um, mm -hmm. portends healthiness. And I guess it starts from day one. So, Well, thank you so much. This has been really fun for us. Lizzie and I really enjoy hearing your talks. So it's nice to get you one-on-one -on -one to where we get to ask you all the questions we want to ask you, but you're usually in front of this huge audience that we don't get to. So this is really nice for us. We really appreciate you coming on. Um, is there somewhere you'd like listeners to, to go to learn more about you or to learn more about your research or to follow you? Where should we send them? Uh, sure. So I do um, put out a lot of my research on uh, Twitter. So you can follow me at Uma Mahadevan IBD. And then if you are interested in our research, you can just Google UCSF IBD and we have a website on uh, some of the research that's ongoing. Awesome. We highly recommend it. We'll put links out to all that stuff. Thank you so much for coming on. This is really a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I have an email from OpenTable saying my points are going to expire. I'm like, fuck you. Fuck you and your points. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified healthcare provider for your specific healthcare needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.